The reading this morning comes in two parts. The first part will be from 1 Samuel chapter 5. After the Philistines had captured the Ark of God, they took it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. Then they carried the Ark into Dagon's temple and set it beside Dagon. When the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, there was Dagon, fallen on his face on the ground before the Ark of the Lord. They took Dagon and put him back in his place. But the following morning when they rose, there was Dagon, fallen on his face on the ground before the Ark of the Lord. His head and hands had been broken off and were lying on the threshold. Only his body remained. That is why to this day, neither the priests of Dagon nor any others who enter Dagon's temple at Ashdod step on the threshold. The Lord's hand was heavy on the people of Ashdod and its vicinity. He brought devastation on them and afflicted them with tumours. When the people of Ashdod saw what was happening, they said, The ark of the God of Israel must not stay here with us, because his hand is heavy on us and on Dagon our God. So they called together all the rulers of the Philistines and asked them, What shall we do with the ark of the God of Israel? They answered, Let the ark of the God of Israel be moved to Gath. So they moved the ark of the God of Israel. But after they had moved it, the Lord's hand was against the city, throwing it into a great panic. He afflicted the people of the city, both young and old, with an outbreak of tumours. So they sent the ark of God to Ekron. As the ark of God was entering Ekron, the people of Ekron cried out, They have brought the ark of the God of Israel round to us to kill us and our people. So they called together all the rulers of the Philistines and said, Send the ark of the God of Israel away. Let it go back to its own place, or it will kill us and our people. For death had filled the city with panic. God's hand was very heavy on it. Those who did not die were afflicted with tumours, and the outcry of the city went up to heaven. We continue our reading in 1 Samuel chapter 6. When the Ark of the Lord had been in Philistine territory for seven months, the Philistines called for the priests and the diviners and said, What shall we do with the Ark of the Lord? Tell us how we should send it back to its place. They answered, If you return the Ark of the God of Israel, do not send it back to him without a gift. By all means, send a guilt offering to him. Then you will be healed and you will know why his hand has not been lifted from you. The Philistines asked, what guilt offering should we send to him? They replied, five gold tumors and five gold rats, according to the number of the Philistine rulers, because the same plague has struck both you and your rulers. Make models of the tumors and of the rats that are destroying the country and give glory to Israel's God. Perhaps he will lift his hand from you and your gods and your land. Why do you harden your hearts as the Egyptians and Pharaoh did? When Israel's God dealt harshly with them, did they not send the Israelites out so that they could go on their way? Now then, get a new cart ready with two cows that have calved and have never been yoked. Hitch the cows to the cart, but take their calves away and pen them up. Take the ark of the Lord and put it on the cart, and in a chest beside it, put the gold objects you are sending back to him as a guilt offering. Send it on its way, but keep watching it. If it goes up to its own territory, towards Beth Shemesh, 
then the Lord has brought this great disaster on us. But if it does not, then we shall know that it was not his hand that struck us, but that it happened to us by chance. So they did this. They took two such cows and hitched them to the cart and penned up their calves. They placed the ark of the Lord on the cart and along with it, the chest containing the gold rats and the models of the tumors. Then the cows went straight up towards Beth Shemesh, keeping on the road and lowing all the way. They did not turn to the right or to the left. The rulers of the Philistines followed them as far as the border of Beth Shemesh. Now the people of Beth Shemesh were harvesting their wheat in the valley, and when they looked up and saw the ark, they rejoiced at the sight. The cart came to the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh, and there it stopped beside a large rock. The people chopped up the wood of the cart and sacrificed the cows as a burnt offering to the Lord. The Levites took down the ark of the Lord, together with the chest containing the gold objects, and placed them on the large rock. On that day, the people of Beth Shemesh offered burnt offerings and made sacrifices to the Lord. The five rulers of the Philistines saw all of this and then returned that same day to Ekron. These are the gold tumors the Philistines sent as a guilt offering to the Lord. One each for Ashdod, Gath, Ashkelon, Gath, and Ekron. And the number of the gold rats was according to the number of Philistine towns belonging to the five rulers, the fortified towns with their country villages. The large rock on which the Levites set the Ark of the Lord is a witness to this day in the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh. But God struck down some of the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh, putting 70 of them to death because they looked into the Ark of the Lord. The people mourned because of the heavy blow the Lord had dealt them. And the people of Beth Shemesh asked, Who can stand in the presence of the Lord, this holy God? To whom will the Ark go up from here? Then they sent messengers to the people of Kiriath-Jearim, saying, The Philistines have returned the Ark of the Lord. Come down and take it up to your town. So the men of Kiriath-Jearim came and took up the Ark of the Lord. They brought it to Abinadab's house on the hill and consecrated Eleazar his son to guard the Ark of the Lord. The Ark remained at Kiriath-Jearim a long time, 20 years in all. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks, Hannah, so much for reading that. Now, you might have been thinking, what exactly was all of that about? There's quite a lot in that story. But if I said to you that we're going to be looking at a Bible story with statues coming down, uh, a story where there's a widespread disease moving from city to city, um, a story where those cities are locking down, trying to get rid of the disease and move it away from them. That might, that might sound a little bit more familiar. It might sound a bit more intriguing. And if I said the reason this story is here is actually just as valuable. In the midst of everything that is going on and all the strange things that are happening, actually it's about showing us that God doesn't need any help from anyone, that God is able to bring about what he, uh, what he needs and what he wants to by himself. And that that is just as, uh, as useful and valuable for us uh, in figuring out our own lives uh, and the times that we live in. Then I wonder if you might be willing to come with me and, and look a bit more at it. 
Um, it's a, a, a story that's full of um, different things, and we just need to remind ourselves of some of the details we saw um, last week. It follows on from last week's um, story. Firstly, um, it's about it's in this place um, where the Philistines are. Now, who are the Philistines? Tim explained to us last week that um, they are the Sea Peoples in the west of Israel. They had five major cities, as you can see. And those five cities are important later on, but they were the bases that they had. They worshipped Dagon. Um, now, who was he? He was their god of agriculture, and there was a temple that they had to Dagon. And then, of course, what we're talking about here is the ark. Um, now, the ark is that box shape um, that represented God's presence, God being with them there. And the ark had been captured by the Philistines, as we saw last week. Now, although there is a lot in it, it's got a beginning, a middle and an end, and we'll take it in that sequence, um, and it's not, not too hard to follow. And the beginning of the story is when the ark has been taken, and let's call it raided by the lost ark. Uh, raided by the Lost Ark. Now, this is my joke, um, because if you know the film uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark, in that film, uh, a Harrison Ford, Indiana Jones film, the Ark was the thing that they were all trying to locate and, and uh, get control of. And in this story, it is the other way around. Uh, it turns out that the Ark, in this story, is going on the offensive. The Ark is alive, as it were, and causes mayhem wherever it goes. Um, so let's have a look. First, they take it um, to the city of Ashdod. So that's city number one. They put it in front of the statue of Dagon. Um, and the scene here is meant to be quite funny. It's kind of comic in its storytelling. Um, so you've got to imagine they kind of arrive and they're carrying it in and someone's kind of going, hey, let's, let's put the ark at Dagon's feet. A footrest for Dagon. Ha ha, brilliant. You know, they kind of put it there. And then we read in verse two, they carried the ark into Dagon's temple, set it beside Dagon. When the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, there was Dagon fallen on his face on the ground uh, before the ark of the Lord. Um, so it's meant to be slightly comic. Down has come this statue of Dagon. Um, and if you imagine, it's kind of almost like a boxing match. And uh, the sort of scene is set and you've got to kind of imagine the temple staff. They come in. All right, uh, pick Dagon back up, put him back in his place. All right, Dagon. Now he got the better of you in, in uh, round one, but it's, it's two rounds. So we can, you, you can have him this time. And what happens? Verse three, they took Dagon, put him back in his place. But the following morning when they rose, there was Dagon fallen on his face on the ground before the ark of the Lord. His head and hands had been broken off and were lying on the threshold. Only his body remained. So this time he's in bits. It's all over Dagon. Wipe out. Sorry. And you might be thinking, well, I, you know, I didn't realize there was, there was actually a story of a statue coming down in the Bible. Um, we have seen statues coming down over the UK, haven't we? And, uh, and across the world. And you might be uh, somebody who um, people who think, yes, they should be coming down. And some people are thinking, no, they shouldn't be coming down. There's a kind of spectrum in between of what, what should or shouldn't happen. Now, wouldn't it be amazing if this was the Bible's guide to what to do with statues? And unfortunately, it's not uh, really. Um, it doesn't uh, quite say that. But it does, it does at least remind us that statues matter. 
Uh, they, show, they show that someone or something uh, is, matters or is considered important. And of course, putting the ark at Dagon's feet was meant to show Dagon was in charge. And when the statue falls, it shows that Dagon doesn't have any power at all. Um, an early Bible translator, um, William Tyndale, wrote, he translated it, Dagon lay groveling upon the ground. Now, it then gets worse for the Philistines, and we'll, we'll move through some of the cities. It's still in the city of Ashdod, first of all. Um, verse 6, the Lord's hand was heavy on the people. He brought devastation on them and afflicted them with tumours. So there's now a plague that's affecting that city, um, uh, and possibly a bubonic plague, um, which I see is possibly in the news again. Um, and then verse 7, um, when the people of Ashdod saw what was happening, um, they said, well, it, this ark can't stay here because the Lord's hand is heavy on us and, and on Dagon our God. So they called together all the rulers of the Philistines and asked, well, what do we do? And they say, well, let it be moved on to Gath. So they moved the ark of God on. Now, can you imagine, how do you think the people of Gath felt at that point? Um, Gath is city number two. After they'd moved it, verse nine, the Lord's hand was against that city, Gath throwing it into a great panic. And he afflicted the people of that city, both young and old, with an outbreak of tumours. So they sent the Ark of God to Ekron. Now, Ekron is city number three. And you can imagine, imagine someone in Ekron who says, well, hang on, I've got an aunt in Ashdod and I've got a, a cousin in, in Gath. And don't you be bringing that Ark here. I've heard about what happens there. But it comes into Ekron in verse 10 and the people cry out, They've brought the ark of the God of Israel round to us to kill us and our people. So, of course, they say, send it away. And those who did not die, verse 12, were afflicted with tumours, and the outcry of the city went up to heaven. And there's a game um, you may have played, uh, perhaps as a child, called Hot Potato. Um, it's a simple game um, where there's some music playing and you have an object or a ball or something and you pass it um, from person to person. And the idea is that when the music stops, you don't want to be the one holding the, the object or the ball, uh, the hot potato. And you can see it's, the arc is being passed around from city to city like a giant game of hot potato or hot arc which doesn't really work, does it? But you get what I mean. Um, and so the ark goes from Ashdod, and we don't want it, to Gath, and we don't want it, to Ekron, and we don't want it. Now, what is all this about? Why, you know, why is this? I said it's quite comic. They thought they were controlling the ark, but the ark was controlling them. They thought they'd put the ark where they wanted, at Dagon's feet, but the ark couldn't be contained because God can't be contained. And God would do this on his own. He didn't, have, you know, he didn't have anyone to fight for him here. None of his people were there. None of his judges are there or his priests or his prophets or even his kings. We haven't met his kings yet. But he didn't need anyone to fight for him. They had been raided by the lost ark. See? Now, the second part, the middle part of the story um, is, so what do we do with the ark? And we're going to call this... We're going to call this Mushin Impossible, okay? We're going to call it Mushin Impossible. What do we do with the ark? That's what they ask. At the start of chapter 6, they basically say, you know, it's been, the ark, we're told, has been there for seven months of plague. Can you imagine? Seven months. 
Um, and they, they say, well, what do we do with it? And they, they're given the answer that it needs to be sent back and it needs to be sent back with a gift. Um, and they ask what kind of gift they should have. And in verse four, we, we see it's five gold tumors and five gold rats, according to the number of the Philistine rulers. Now, that's five because there were five major cities. Um, uh, it's in the shape of the tumors because that was the plague and, and, and rats because it may well be they thought that it was being spread by those rats or mice as they're called later. And then they say something that's quite revealing. They say, uh, make, verse five, make models of the tumors and the rats um, and give glory to Israel's God. Perhaps he will lift his hand from you and your gods and your land. Why do you harden your hearts as the Egyptians and Pharaoh did when Israel's God dealt harshly with them? Didn't they send the Israelites out so they could go on their way? And this, if you think about it, is a rare story in the Bible between God and an unbelieving people. And it's interesting, they have heard something they they have a little bit of understanding and they've heard something of what happened in egypt and with the exodus and and there are lots of links between this story and the exodus story and 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 just some of the phrases like god's hand was heavy appears in the exodus story and mentioning pharaoh uh, which comes uh, here and later as well but they have this they have a bit of understanding and they are beginning to realize that god is greater than they imagined. They are beginning to see and grasp that God is greater than they imagined. And it's so key. But they aren't entirely sure. And so they devise a plan. They devise a plan to send the ark back and to kind of test it out. Um, So (laughs) given that I called it, the plan involves a couple of cows. So that's why we've called it Mission Impossible. So you just imagine, you know, some Mission Impossible uh, theme music maybe strikes up. Now then, get a new cart ready with two cows that have calved and have never been yoked. Hitch the cows to the cart, but take their calves away and pen them up. Um, And then they're to take um, the Ark of the Lord, put it on a cart with the gold objects and send it on its way. But verse 9, keep watching it. If it goes up to its own territory towards Beth Shemesh uh, in Israel, then the Lord has brought this disaster. If it doesn't, we'll know it's not by his hand, but it's happened by chance. So basically the plan is get two cows that have just had baby cows. And um, because those cows are going to want to go and look after their baby cows, they're going to want to go in a certain direction. So actually, if they start heading up the road to uh, Israel, then it's, it's got to be something. Um, it must be God. So it's not a bad plan, actually. It's, it, it is a bit weird, but in, in terms of what's going to happen, um, it, it, it's, you know, I can see, how, I see why they put it together. Um, verse 12, then the cows went straight up towards Beth Shemesh, keeping on the road and lowing all the way. They didn't turn to the right or the left. So i.e., it goes straight back to God's people Israel. And the cows are lowing, it's a lovely detail, because they don't want to leave. They want to go back, they're lowing because they're annoyed. I want to go back to my baby cows. So there's nothing, um, unfortunately there's nothing they can do to stop it. And the ark, you see, is driving the cows, not the cows driving the ark. So it's the same idea, it's God doing this. God doesn't need anyone else. He's, he's able to get himself out of this situation, so to speak. 
So it's a similar idea. And then the ending of the story uh, will call, don't look at the ark. Okay, the end of the story, everyone is pleased. So, um, uh, verse 13, um, the people of Beth Shemesh were harvesting their wheat in the valley, and when they looked up and saw the ark, they rejoiced at the sight. So there they all are, hooray, the ark is back. Isn't that great? Um, so the ark comes into the field of Joshua um, there, and it stops beside a large rock. Um, the people chop up the wood of the cart, and they sacrifice the cows as a burnt offering to the Lord. So I'm sorry if you were hoping for a better outcome for the cows. That is what happens. The Levites, uh, that's the priestly line, took down um, the Ark of the Lord together with the chest containing the gold objects and they placed them on the large rock and then they offer um, the uh, offerings and sacrifices. And in verse 16, the five rulers of the Philistines saw this and then they go home. Now, that's the, so there's the ending of the story, but there is a sting in the tail. In verse 19, but God struck down some of the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh, putting 70 of them to death because they looked into the Ark of the Lord. Now, back in the book of Numbers in the Old Testament, God's instructions have been really clear. You weren't to look into the Ark. It was, uh, it was too dangerous. God is too holy. And that is what they do, and 70 of them die. And the people mourned because of the heavy blow the Lord had dealt them. And then the Israelites say something that is pretty much the same as what the Philistines said. The people of Beth Shemesh said, Who can stand in the presence of the Lord, this holy God? To whom will the ark go up from here? Now, why is there this sting in the tail? Why does it end this way? Because God's people didn't control God either. It's actually quite a stark reminder. No one owns God or controls him. Not the Philistines when they thought they had the ark, nor God's people when they have him back. Nobody controls God. Now, if we step back from this story, so there's a lot going on in this story, but if we step back, what might seem quite a kind of crazy story at times, it's actually quite key in this book and where God's people are. We've had... The long years of the judges, where things have been quite chaotic, but often God has rescued people through a leader, and we kind of get into that pattern, that a leader comes and he rescues them. And after the past few weeks where we've seen bad leaders um, in, for God's people, and that they've, they've then died, and we've seen Samuel emerging, we might think, well, phew, Samuel is coming, so that's great, we're okay. And in this book, which is about leaders and leaders for God's people, we're being told here God doesn't need a leader. He doesn't even need Samuel. And it's remarkable if you think for, the, for a book that's going to be about Saul and about David, about the kings, about God, some of God's greatest kings, it's as if the writer is saying, in this book about King David, let's be quite clear, God is in charge. There is no leader like him. He doesn't need anyone to fight for him. He doesn't need anyone to get him out of difficulty. He can defeat his enemies. He can bring the ark out like it's a mini exodus again, like he rescued people before. God doesn't need anyone. He is powerful to achieve his purposes by himself. Now, when you, when you stand back and you see that, and you see it in the history of God's people, and, and then it just it helps us understand God but it's also it's a huge challenge because it means he doesn't need us he doesn't need us 
If you think about it from in our lives, in our plans, in our programs, do we assume that God needs us here in Manchester, here at Platts? Do you know, perhaps you think I, I might think to myself, oh, I'm, I'm sure God needs me here. I'm sure it's, you know, it's really important that I'm here, and it's a reminder that He doesn't. Is that humbling? It's really, I think it's really humbling. We're not the center of the universe, which God kind of revolves around us. And it's humbling. And if you're, uh, it's humbling for us who are Christians. If you're not a Christian, perhaps, perhaps that's one of the first questions that's still worth asking yourself. Is, is your working assumption that God must need you? If there's a God out there, not sure, but if there's a God out there, he must need me. Actually, he doesn't. Now, that's not the same thing as saying God doesn't want you. And that is where the Christian faith gets really interesting. And I would love for you to find out more. It's not the same as saying God doesn't want you, but he doesn't need us. And it's that kind of challenge, but it's also, you know, it can be a great encouragement because it means we follow a God who doesn't depend on us. He doesn't depend on us. Because if God had depended on, on his people, what a mess that he would have found himself in, given that they, uh, they let the ark be captured and all sorts of things. It, this is really important, I think, for us as we, as we think about ourselves, as we think about the times that we live in. You might look at world events and what's going on and, and perhaps the, uh, uh, the, the, the events of the pandemic. And we might be somebody who says, well, you know, this should have been done or that should have been done. And of course, now it's all going to be... Um, uh, there's nothing we can do about it now. Or perhaps in your own life, you worry and think, well, maybe I should have done this or I should have done that. You know, one of the remarkable things about the Christian God is that he doesn't depend upon us. You know, whether we do well, whether we do badly, he doesn't depend upon his people. He is far greater than us. He is able to bring about his purposes and his plans. And Tim last week pointed us in the direction of the cross. He said, supremely, we see that in Jesus, don't we? Where if it had depended on his people, if it had depended on, on us, what a mess we made of it. Humanity turned against him. And Jesus died for us. And he, God was able to bring about his purposes of salvation for us, even as we turned against him. If it had depended on us, what a mess we would have made. So you see, to know that God doesn't need us is actually a huge encouragement that through the history of his people in what he is doing, he can bring it about and he will do so. And it means we can come to him confident, knowing that is the kind of leader that he is, far greater than any other. May we take that challenge and that encouragement into today and into this week.